But now we turn to the 24th chapter of Matthew. Now let me say that when we come to Matthew 24, it's a very complicated chapter. And we're going to look at the whole chapter. Because if we don't, if we look at it a few verses each week, you're going to miss the broad stroke. You're going to miss what the chapter is all about. And so I'm going to try and do the very difficult thing of leading us through the chapter, at least the broad strokes, so that you understand what it's about. There are those who believe that Matthew 24 is only about the return of Christ. There are those who believe that Matthew 24 is only about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., I believe as we read the chapter carefully, it is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and it is about the return of Christ. These things interplay throughout the chapter, which is one of the things that makes reading this chapter and expounding it somewhat difficult. But uh, you're up to it. The Spirit of God indwells you. and You've all had a good night's sleep. Most of us anyway. So we're ready. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, will you open this text before us and help us to understand it, apply it to our minds and to our hearts. We pray that the blessed Holy Spirit of God who has given to us this wonderful passage before us will clean up our reasoning because by the fall we're all confused. Sweep out our foolishness and help us to be concerned with what the text teaches, and to live under the authority of your word. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. 
For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, wherever the corpse is. There the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, He will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Prophecy, to use the words of Machen, prophecy is rarely a definite mapping out of future events. 
It is not intended that we take the Bible and then a newspaper and then we begin to see the parallels and to set dates, especially as it relates to the coming of Jesus Christ. But some prophecy that is found in Matthew 24 is more specific, relating to something that is very near the coming of Jerusalem. And Jesus says there are real signs for this. And then there also is some less specific reference to the coming of Christ in the distant future, for which we are said we must be aware and we must be alert. And so God speaks his word to his people this morning. And the overall purpose of this chapter, whatever may be true of the details, is clear. Until Christ comes again, this age in which we live is marked by trouble, calling believers to be alert, waiting for the coming of Christ. And so you can begin to obey this passage this morning by being alert as we go through this passage. You think I'm jesting. I'm not jesting. I really mean that you can actually begin to believe and to repent and be alert by being alert under the authority of the Word this morning as we go through this passage and try and understand it together. Now that's what I want to do. I want to take us through the passage and I want to give us some headings that help us to see the main issues and the main points of Matthew chapter 24. And the first thing that I think we see is the destruction of Jerusalem is impending. The destruction of Jerusalem is impending as the chapter opens. In the first two verses of Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he said to them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They're in the temple precincts. They're looking at the temple, the grandeur, all these great and massive stones and the work that has been done. What the temple was supposed to be, of course, they've totally forgotten. It was degraded. Its devotion was degraded. Its typological significance was forgotten. It had become a den of thieves. The temple has now been disqualified. Jesus has come. He fulfills the symbolic significance. And there will now be a new temple, the church, and a new Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that we learn this immediately. As Jesus points to these buildings and he says, you see this temple? Catastrophe is coming. These these stones, not one is going to be left on another. It's all going to be torn down. We learn this. Our God is sovereign over history. Our God is sovereign over history. He is sovereign even over catastrophe. He is sovereign over us and over our lives, over our nation and all nations and all things great and small. Now, men don't like that. Men prefer anarchy. Men prefer to imagine that we are in control, that history is in our control, that we can determine things. But our great comfort as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is in the sovereignty of God even over catastrophe. Our great comfort is that our sovereign God is in control. And one of the great purposes of prophecy is right here, to encourage the people of God to know that in the midst of the fallenness of this world, God is working out his strange and mysterious, sovereign, redemptive, and good purpose. Men may seek a God that he can use, but history is not in the hands of men. 
As we read in the second psalm, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord is in sovereign control. And here is the ultimate answer to broken-hearted Christians. I know that I'm speaking to broken-hearted Christians today. I know that about all of us. I know that some of you are broken-hearted because relationships haven't gone the way you wanted them to go in life. Some of you are broken-hearted because all of your plans seem to have fallen down. Some of you are broken-hearted because you're deeply concerned about children or you're deeply concerned even about the state of the world around us, about wars and rumors of wars. Here is the ultimate answer for broken-hearted Christians. What is that answer? It's the answer to the question, who is in control of history? Who will bring all things to judgment? Who will make all things right that are now wrong? He who rules the heaven and earth and all creatures, so that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. And so the first thing we see is that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. Not one stone is going to be left on another, but he, the Lord, is in sovereign control of that circumstance, in sovereign control of history. Then the second thing we need to see if we're really going to understand this chapter, the second thing is an understanding of the disciples' questions. You see, the questions of the disciples found here in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, what will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? The disciples then can hardly believe it. Jesus has said that this temple will be destroyed. Wouldn't this mean the end of the world? They could not imagine the destruction of the temple without it being the consummation of the age. It must be the end of the world when this takes place. It must, be, it must be the judgment day when this takes place, they think. But they've asked two questions, and even though they link them, the Lord Jesus Christ distinguishes them in the answer that he gives in this chapter. And the two questions are these. When will these things be? That's the first question. When will these things be? And the second is... What will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus distinguishes these, and we must distinguish them in order to understand the chapter. Jesus did not want his disciples then or now to focus on timetables, but on careful, holy, godly living. Eschatological interest is not about speculation, but about how to help you to believe and repent and to apply the gospel to your life every day. And that's why the very first word of the Lord Jesus to his disciples after they ask these questions is, do not be deceived. Or as he puts it here in verse 4, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Many will make futuristic, fantastic claims, but these, he says in verses 6 through 8, these are the beginning of birth pangs. This is not the end. This is just the beginning of birth pangs. Remember what the Lord says to us in 2 Peter 3.8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
So there's this interplay that's going on throughout this chapter as these questions are answered by the Lord Jesus Christ. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? An interplay between the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ and the prediction of desolation in chapter uh, in this in this in this in this chapter is tied primarily to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now that leads us to the next thing. The third thing we need to see in order to understand the chapter is what should we expect in this present age in which we live? What should we expect in this present age? Now that takes us up with several passages here, but primarily with verses 6 through 14. Let's look again. Verses 6 through 14. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so he's addressing what we should expect as followers, disciples of Jesus, in this age in which we now live between the ascension and the return of Christ. He gives the broad stroke here for us, and he tells us, here's what you can expect, perils within and perils without. No health and wealth here, people. (laughs) Perils within, perils without. And he focuses upon two expectations. The first is, he said, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to hate you. They're going to kill you. You're going to be persecuted. Now, we know that's true. We can read the remainder of the New Testament and see it's true. We can research church history and see that it's true. Some of you remember Richard Wormbrand, don't you? Lutheran minister that suffered under the communists. Helped to start what is called the Voice of the Martyrs. We keep up with the Voice of the Martyrs. They tell us about martyrdom throughout the world right now. This is from Richard Wormbrand. What shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them? If I do not bear them... I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish from me, to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself when the communists have put you in prison. All right? You've got to start now preparing your mind and heart for persecution. You can't wait until it happens to be prepared. I remember, he says, my last confirmation class before I left Romania. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls to the zoo. It takes a confirmation class to the zoo. Why? Before the cage of lions, I told them, your forefathers in faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes when they said yes. 
And then Wormbrand goes on to say, we have to make the preparation now before we are imprisoned. In prison, you lose everything. You are undressed and given a prisoner's suit. No more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You do not have a wife anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. You see, what he's saying here is precisely what Paul does in 1 Corinthians, that those who have wives should live as if they have none. That is to say, do you understand this? Do you really understand this? You will only enjoy this world when you let go of it. Do you get that? Do you you understand that? The less you are attached to the world, the more rightly you can enjoy this world. Because it's no longer your idol. But if you live for this world and the things of this world, I'm not saying simply enjoying the things of this world, but you live for them. You live for this world when you live for this world. And this world has become your idol. Oh, my friend, when persecution comes, certainly we will not stand if that's our attitude. No, no, we have to have let go already. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this, that, or the other. Thank you for family, for friends, for wife, for husband, for nice things that we enjoy. But, Lord, you can take them away anytime. You can do this. And, Lord, by the word dwelling in me, by the Spirit of God, I'm prepared for whatever comes. So Jesus says, what are you going to expect in this era in which you live as my disciples? You're going to expect persecution. Then he says there's something else. There's a call to witness bearing through it all. There's going to be witness bearing through it all. And the gospel will be proclaimed as a witness to all nations before the return of Christ. And so in his disciples, Jesus addresses all of his disciples until the end of the age. And you know the Old Testament tells us that God's plan is that the nations be reached for Christ. Paul, the apostle, was so gripped to reach unreached peoples. In Romans 15, he cites an Old Testament passage. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Christ himself is the one singing in that passage, singing the missionary chant over the Gentiles. Nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, God will be worshipped among the nations. And God designs to bring people to himself for his own glory When we talk about missions, and we have our missions conference, we give to missionaries, and we give a great deal of our budget to missions, and we want to give more of our budget to missions. When we do this, for people to think, why are we doing such a thing? Well, here's the answer. Because missions defines the age in which we live. That's what Jesus told us to expect. That's why missions, for the glory of God. It defines the age in which we live until Christ comes again. So, what are we to expect? The times are evil, but you are called to faithfulness. The spread of the gospel, be steady, be grounded, live in hope. Do not be alarmed at these events. He says in verse 6, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. The reason is hidden in God's providence, but God is for his people. Therefore, before, between the ascension and return of Christ is the time of birth pangs, but the birth is promised. 
The whole world will hate the Christian faith and Christians, but our call is to endurance. Verse 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. During this whole period, the gospel is spread through the world. If we're going to understand this chapter, we need to move to a fourth point. The fourth thing is this. Jesus now gives to us a close-up view of the time immediately after his ascension, and he does this in verses 15 through 21. I'm not going to reread all of these verses, but that's what he's doing here. There's this interplay describing primarily the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but also instruction about how we are to live until Christ returns. That makes the passage somewhat difficult. But the entire era is one of distress, and here is one particular distress that he mentions in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now what is he saying? Well, if you are alert this morning, you heard that in the passage that Pastor McDonald read to us from Daniel. This abomination of desolation, this one that Daniel prophesied that would come and who would bring abomination of desolation, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who entered into the Holy of Holies and erected an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on it. That's what Jesus is doing. He's using that as an illustration. Luke 21 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. You see how it happened before? That there was the desolation of the temple, the desecration by Gentiles. It's going to happen again. Immediately after his ascension, it did happen. And Jesus uses that as a symbol. A symbol. The temple will be desecrated. But do not be overly attached to Jerusalem. When you see this happen, get out and do it in a hurry, he says in verses 17 and 18. Don't worry about your cloak. Just get out. Your witness bearing is more important. Don't be overly attached to the temple or Jerusalem. And the slaughter that happened in 70 AD has never been equaled in the history of mankind. I I will not bring into this pulpit descriptions of what happened. Historical accounts of what took place. So horrible are they. But Jesus says, when you see this happen, it is not the end. But it is among the last milestones before the end. 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem was an indicator of the final judgment of God on sin. And the judgments of God in history point to a far greater and final judgment. And believe me, if we did this morning read the account of this judgment that God brought upon Jerusalem through pagans in 70 AD, we would say to ourselves, and the judgment at the end of time is greater than this? Yes, it will be. So he takes that symbol the abomination of desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem, and from that he works his way again out into the age and he gives to us additional warnings. That's the fifth thing that you see. Additional warnings. They're found in verses 22 through 28. He returns to this general period of distress between the ascension of Christ and he references all flesh in verse 22, not just Jerusalem, but all flesh, all people. So it's more comprehensive than simply the destruction of Jerusalem. 
This age, he tells us in these verses, is characterized by distress and evangelism, by wars and famines and persecutions and hatred and false prophets. So great is it that if God did not check the wicked, no one would survive and the very elect would be deceived. There would have been, if you calculated it, more martyrs to the Christian faith, more martyrs to the Christian faith in the 20th and now into the 21st centuries than in all 19 centuries preceding. Right now in Nigeria, hundreds of Anglican Christians being destroyed, being killed, and you don't even hear about it in the news media. It is something that we should note that Jesus wants us to be warned against false teachers in these verses. In this period of the expansion of his kingdom, he says, watch out for false teachers. Do not be deceived even by spectacular signs and what appears to be miraculous. Our Lord warns us. He wishes to strengthen us. Do not look for the Messiah in some little conclave. His coming will be public and visible as the lightning in the sky. And so as we come into the summer season and you begin to see the, the, the dark clouds roll in and you see the streaks of lightning in the sky, let it bring this passage to your mind. Let it bring to mind verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Light, visible, all will see. When he comes again. Verse 28 is a proverb. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It doesn't take much imagination to understand that. In God's own good time, when the world is ripe for judgment, it will come. Or maybe the emphasis is, it will be impossible for the world to miss the return of Christ as it is for the vulture to miss eating carrion. But it's coming. Now Jesus gives to us a view of his own return. In verses 29 to 31, that's the sixth thing you see. The return of Christ. There's a major shift in verses 29 through 31. Let's read them. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So he uses this apocalyptic imagery, such as you read in the book of Isaiah. Listen to a couple of them. Isaiah 13.10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 34.4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now... These, in Isaiah, were prophecies of judgment on the nations. God's day of wrath brings 
the dissolution of cosmic structures. And Christ will come like lightning in the sky. And when he comes, he will gather his own. He tells us in verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What does Paul tell us? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Listen to John Calvin. Good words, these. Whenever, therefore, we perceive the church scattered by the wiles of Satan, or torn in pieces by the cruelty of the ungodly, or disturbed by false doctrines, or tossed about by storms, Let us learn to turn our eyes to this gathering of the elect. And if it appears to us a thing difficult to be believed, let us call to remembrance the power of the angels which Christ holds out to us for the express purpose of raising our views above human means. For though the church be now tormented by the malice of men or even broken by the violence of the billows and miserably torn in pieces so as to have no stability in the world, Yet we ought always to cherish confident hope because it will not be by human means, but by heavenly power, which will be far superior to every obstacle that the Lord will gather his church. Is your heart fixed there? Do you even care about these things? Do these things fill your mind? Do they determine your life? Jesus is coming again like lightning in heaven, and will gather his own unto himself. Which takes us to our seventh point in understanding Matthew 24. To put it simply, be ready. Be ready. And really that takes us through verses 36 to 51 that this refers to the coming of Christ rather than the destruction of Jerusalem, I think is clear. There's a sharp contrast. The destruction of Jerusalem would be something clearly foreseen and, and can be avoided by flight. Christ coming, no, it's different. No one can say, I see it coming and I'll hastily prepare for it. When it comes, it comes. Yeah, there are precursors. But no one knows when it's going to happen. So he speaks of the certainty of the coming of Christ. God will gather his elect and Christ will judge the world. But notice also that he speaks of the suddenness of his coming. In verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. By the way, don't be disturbed by the fact that the Son says he doesn't know. He humbled himself, didn't he? He took upon himself human nature. This is Christ and his humility. This is Philippians 2. But he speaks of the suddenness of it. Get the point. And the analogy that he uses is the analogy of things as they took place in the day when the flood came, when when Noah lived. So he says in verse 37, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The return of Christ will suddenly come in the midst of ordinary life with people doing ordinary, everyday things. He says in verse 40, two are going to be in the field, field, one taken, the other left. Two will be at the mill, one taken, the other left. 
It's not clear whether he means taken to be gathered to his elect or taken to the judgment, but the point is the suddenness of it all. That's the point. Then he speaks of the expectancy of the return of Christ. When the master of the house leaves but returns suddenly, you want to be found at your job. And so he says, live expectantly. Live in the knowledge that the owner of the house will return. Look at verses 44 through 46. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Will that be you? We've actually gotten through a survey of Matthew 24. Yeah, I know all kinds of details. But I think if you keep these things in mind, you'll understand Matthew 24. We've gotten through our survey of Matthew 24, but we're not done preaching. <laughs> You're not done listening. Because we need to come with a couple of additional applications, don't we? Sure we do. First, to you unbelievers who are here today, you don't know the Lord. You don't know Christ. You're still in your sins. You're still under guilt and the condemnation and wrath of God. Unbeliever, the Lord Jesus will return. If in your lifetime and you're not a believer, there will be doom. If after your death, there will be eternal judgment nonetheless. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And notice this, Jesus says that for hypocrites in particular, Jesus, Jesus tells of awful judgment. Look at verses 48 to the end of the chapter or the end of this section. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, we were gathered as a session a few weeks ago. And we were dealing with a discipline case. And when, when your elders deal with discipline matters, there's nothing harder and nothing heavier. We grieve and we mourn and we weep and we pray and we... Nothing, nothing. We also are sometimes gripped by an appropriate fear. And you know, I said that to the elders. Every time we go through a discipline case, there's an appropriate fear in my heart because I'm a sinner just like this person. One of our wise ruling elders said, yes, yes. Yes, he said. We really don't know who we're messing with. Just listen to how God has been referenced this week. TV and radio and the media. The world doesn't know who God is. If you're an unbeliever, you don't know who you're messing with. 
You need the cross. Because judgment is coming. Second point of application. Believer. Believer in the Lord Jesus. Watch. Be ready. Live expectantly. And that means two things for you and me. The first thing it means for you and me to live expectantly is to be faithful in our daily callings. Husband, father, student, minister, plumber, whatever your calling is. To do that calling in light of the coming of Christ. There was an eclipse in colonial northeast. And the state legislature panicked and several moved to adjourn because they thought it might be the end of the world. One of the legislators stood up and he said, Mr. Speaker, if it is not the end of the world and we adjourn, we shall appear to be fools. If it is the end of the world, I should choose to be found doing my duty. I move, sir, that candles be brought. That's it. You do your job. You do your duty. You do it to the glory of God as if Christ is going to come while you're working. You do it for him. You're not doing it for others ultimately. You're doing it for him. Be steady. Be faithful. Where were you caught off guard this week, I wonder? I was caught off guard. I don't know a day in which I'm not caught off guard, but I don't want to be caught off guard, and I want to be caught off guard less and less. Where were you caught off guard this week in your life? Not living that way. Listen to Jesus in these texts, people of God. Let it bring you to faith and repentance with greater faithfulness. So living expectantly means do your duty every day as if Christ could come while you're doing what he's called you to do. But it also means something else. It means, and I'll just touch on it now, let it lead you to holiness of life. Let it lead you to holiness of life. Despite the differences that may be among us in this congregation on eschatological issues, all right? Your pastors are amillennial. We're not premillennialists. Somebody out there, you're a premillennialist. We might even have a dispensationalist here. All right? Let's just, those are important, very important. I'm not going to minimize the importance. But for the moment, for the moment, despite our differences, can we not all agree on this? That thinking about, dwelling upon the return of Jesus Christ should make me to be a holy man or should make you to be a holy woman. Can't we agree on that? Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because this is precisely what Peter is saying. In 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So what this text in 2 Peter says to us, what we should take from Matthew 24, is that we should live godly, sober lives in the expectancy of the return of Christ. It doesn't matter if he comes in my lifetime or not. The truth and reality of it should make me a holy man. Every generation of Christians should live as if Christ may return in that generation. Whether he does or not. And so I think, people of God, lack of zeal for the glory of God is really an inexcusable thing in my life. And I hope that you see it to be inexcusable in your life too. Do not listen to your pastor because I'm speaking God's truth. Do not grow slack. In your desire to know him, fellowship with him, commune with him, grow in grace, serve him, be zealous for him, do not grow slack. And one of the means that God has given to keep me from growing slack is this focus on the coming of Christ. Living in light of the judgment brings us to daily confession and a real sense of what is important in life. Christ returns the great pole star to direct our lives safely into the eternal harbor. And the ship will not veer from course when its crew watches the star. People of God, Keep your eye on the pole star. Keep your gaze on the coming of Christ.